Welcome to Zooming In from the Unpopulist. I'm Aaron Ross Powell. Joining me today is Bernie Belvedere, the new senior editor at The Unpopulist. We're going to chat today about the state of politics and the defense of liberalism. But Bernie, let's maybe start with a bit about you. Thanks, Aaron, for having me on. Um, uh, Really stoked to be here. So I was born in Buenos Aires, Argentina, which uh, just a funny thing about that. Um, the, The literal translation is something like good air right? The literal translation of Buenos Aires. But really, I think well, the key idea that it, that name tries to get across is something like friendly skies. So it's the capital of Argentina, but I didn't get a chance to know it too well. Uh, we left when I was four and a half, five-ish. We had an opportunity to become citizens really quickly here in the United States. So my parents took that opportunity and we, uh, we went from Buenos Aires to Kansas City, Kansas. Um, on the Kansas side of things. Yeah, we're one of the few on the Kansas side of the divide. Um, and w- for my high school years, I, uh, we moved to Miami, Florida. And then th- those are the places where I've lived. Uh, it's an interesting mix of different uh, types of uh, arrangements and uh, social configurations, but uh, it's also colored my approach to um, the kinds of places that I feel like society can build well. I've taken um, uh, my love for sort of suburban America from Kansas city, Miami is an international, uh, metropolis, very, very big on sprawl in a way that I don't quite prefer as much. I'd like a little bit more densely concentrated, uh, type of city. Um, and Buenos Aires is just sort of European in its flavor, but also combining South American, um, um, aspects as well. So those are the places I've lived. Um, I've, uh, intellectually, I've pursued um, both theology and philosophy at um, uh, a pretty high level. I didn't get a PhD, um, but I uh, but I went for the the graduate degrees in in, in philosophy and in theology. Uh, in the past, I guess if we were in medieval times, it would have just been one field of study, right? But with the specialization of knowledge, it forced me to kind of uh, get a degree in each. Um, but but even the theology that I did was very philosophical in nature. So I guess that would be that would be my overriding interest. So that's a little bit about my background. Um, lots of other stuff we could also talk about, though they aren't the focus of this show. I'm married, got three kids, um, love sports and music. But let's stick to the <laughs> to the stuff that the people want to tune in and listen to, to us talk about. So your academic background is theology and philosophy, but you're now working as senior editor for a political journal. And before that, you were working on another political outlet. What's the connection? So I've always been drawn to political philosophy. And even when I studied um, theology and I, and, and I really um, looked into the different traditions and what they had to say about the different polities and um, you know, how society should be arranged and all that, that was always a really interesting avenue of thought for me. And in terms of now working for a journalistic outfit as opposed to some kind of think tank or something else, I decided um, sort of toward the end of my graduate degree in philosophy that a degree in academia wasn't for me. And the reason is sort of partly vain, I'll admit. And um, it's also partly, I think, um, uh, sort of morally okay. But the vain part is, I wanted to be a part of a broader conversation. 
And unless you become a kind of academic rock star, your work isn't going to be read by many people, maybe the few people in the faculty where you work at, but um, not, you know, not many others. And I wanted to be part of a bigger conversation. So I pivoted to journalism where um, I've been privileged to be able to publish at some big venues and you know, um, people interact with your work, they send you messages, they, um, your, your thought becomes something that then someone else takes into consideration. And then that advances a conversation in a way where, you know, you're fortunate enough to be a part of, uh, an ongoing discourse about a topic. And I, that always moved me. And so I pivoted to that and, uh, I've been working in political journalism for a while. I founded my own venue, um, Arc Digital in 2016, right before the election, really. And ever since then, I've been uh, involved in online writing and editing. Both of us then come from this background of academic ideas and and enjoying those kinds of ideas, discussing them, communicating them, and so on. And both of us ended up yeah, leaning more into the popular audiences side of things than the strictly academic. But when you look out at either the job as a political journalist or kind of the state of political conversation, what role do you see for these kinds of ideas? Because we're in this weird time when it seems like on the one hand, ideological ideas are more dominant than it feels like they were in you know, 20 years ago. Um, and particularly on the right, you're seeing populist right the populist movement, which has a much more kind of ideological streak than the more like bland Paul Ryan conservatism at least professed to have. Uh, on on the left, you're seeing the rise of their own kinds of ideologies about the nature of power and privilege in society. These are like the sorts of heady ideas that we grapple with, but on the other side of things, it feels like the interest in high-level conversation has declined, that that politics has been taken over by id, that we have elevated politicians who don't just speak in sound bites, but often speak in incoherent sound bites. How do we how do we navigate that? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Uh, so at from the beginning at Arc Digital, one of my goals was to take some of this higher level thinking, to take some maybe academic work. And I had reached out to you know members of faculties and um, uh, different scholars. And what I wanted to do was distill some of their higher level thinking into something that's more publicly digestible. Because that represents um, some oftentimes some really good argumentation that if you can just sort of package in a way that is more palatable to the masses, it could be something that could influence thinking for the better. So that's been a kind of, I, I would say for a long time, a kind of holy grail of people with these sensitivities to um, stronger forms of arguments and, and intellectual discourse. That's been a holy grail where can you take some of the awesome stuff that's being uh, published at the research level and show it to the masses in a way where they can be receptive to it and it can influence their thinking. Um, I, I think that's a great approach that that you know uh, responsible uh, publications ought to take. Some of their output should be sort of scholarly stuff, uh, again, uh, made into digestible forms for the masses. So I try to do that at ARC. 
The Unpopulist does that really well, where we work together with scholars and um, with editorial assistance and guidance. We help the work come out in a, in a publishable form where people can read it and get a lot from it. So I think that's a burden of publications today that want to make a meaningful contribution to the discourse. But we're up against it. You're right. We're up against um, a discourse culture now where the most, the, the sort of basest forms of political point scoring has penetrated and has turned it into a kind of own the libs um, aesthetic or on the other side, you know, a kind of, um, you know, the flip side of that, whatever that might look like. And so what you get instead is um, in between and interspersed throughout uh, all the attempts at high level discussions and thinking, you get a whole lot of nonsense and so much of it, in fact, that it can feel like you're um, under a torrential downpour of it and you can't get to the good stuff because your feed and people regularly see this. You and I see this on the social medias that that we um, uh, th that we're on. People are always complaining about the kind of deluge of just um, just crap that our feeds are now dominated by. And it's, and it's partly a function of the way that we have come to operate in these spaces where you find that tossing red meat to, you know, your, your followers is a way to increase engagement and increase your followership where not ceding a single inch to your opponents, even when you privately think that they've got something right. Um, it, you know, it, that's something that if you do that, you're now subject to the kind of blowback that um, people promptly unfollow you or not they don't see you as a reliable source for the position that they want championed. So we've got these structures in place that complicate our, complicate our ability to um, genuinely have good discussions and intellectually rich discussions. Same as it always was, but one hope, a kind of techno-optimist hope early on was that technology in the social media age would kind of try to counteract that, but we're not seeing that at all. This sounds like a Marshall McLuhan, the medium is the message sort of argument. And I'll just, as an aside, I believe it was Ezra Klein who made this point on, on social media recently um, that the, the Mark Andreessen tech optimist manifesto, which didn't seem very optimistic, but mostly just seemed very angry, um, was this interesting example of essentially the structure of Twitter colonizing the the intellect and and rhetoric of of essay writing that this this essay was written in essentially a very long series of of tweets so not just short declarative statements but also I think exactly the kind of thing that you're mentioning which is rhetoric tuned to create engagement anger. And and that that's that's spreading out. Um, some of it seems like this started with cable news, though. Like, I don't know that we can pin all the blame on on social media, but this seems like a problem for us. Like the Unpopulist publishes long and thoughtful essays on a wide range of topics that demand careful engagement um, and and you know focused attention. Like it's not we're not writing 
super academic stuff, but it is – this is not a series of tweets and it's not a series of like rage bait declarations. Uh, but this is all happening in a digital space that seems to structurally kind of further incentivize that. How do we how do we get out of that from from the political standpoint? You know, because we have to participate in it. We can't the unpopulist can't just kind of be a print magazine that doesn't do anything digitally. We have to participate in this space. Um, we have to communicate in ways that are to some extent native to the space if we want people to to talk about it. But this seems like a big problem for politics is that we have like imposed structural limitations on the very discourse itself. And then that's making things worse. Absolutely. And it's a problem again, that is not new, as you noted, cable news. Um, when, when it, uh, when cable news arose and promoted a different kind of coverage model and it was incredibly, um, sort of attentive to viewership numbers in a way where perhaps past um, uh, network news channels, when there were so few of them, they didn't have to be because where else were, were people going to go for their news? Now with the introduction of a cable news network and its rivals, they had to very closely pay attention to what people would want to hear. And, and I know there's a kind of cartoonish quality to sort of to Aaron Sorkin's work at times. It can be extremely optimistic, but there's a kind of naive optimism to it. But I think it's also illustrative in uh, his show, The Newsroom, where it's that same sort of struggle where you have a news anchor who is sort of constitutionally bothered by the fact that uh, the people seem to be wanting to tune into a bunch of garbage and a bunch of dumb argumentation and just theatrics. And he wants to tell the news. And so the underlying thesis of that show, which is profoundly mistaken, is that if you just give people the right information, they will see the value of it, and then they'll lead better lives, they'll form better thoughts. It's sort of, we can call it the kind of naive information theory. That's been proven sort of false because people time and again revert to um, wanting that sort of um, memeified uh simplistic narrative that says my opponents are idiots and our side is so obviously correct instead of an informative package that tells you at times uncomfortably you're a bit wrong on this the other side might be right we're not totally you know victorious on this point people just don't want that there are sort of neurological you know psychological reasons for all of this and reality is just structured in that sort of way so when you say we're up against it, um, we are in a far sort of deeper way than people realize. I think algorithms are calibrated to exploit all of this precisely because it works and because it gets the results that the social media platform um, engineers and, and, and big shots that, that they want. It keeps people engaged. It's the kind of stuff that they want. So in a sense, we're we're, it's almost like a countercultural or against the current kind of product that we've got. Now, there are people who do want um, uh, argumentation and uh, a, a kind of platforming of opposing views at times. And they want things that are infused with the intellectual virtues as you and I um, you know, know them to be. But that's not the majority. That's not what people consistently want, even the good ones. And so we're, 
I, I don't want to make it seem like we're in this sort of heroic quest, us against the world and like, uh, you know, woe is us kind of a thing. But in a large, in a large sense, we have a task that uh, the environment that we work in and the structural conditions in it and the quote unquote consumers and customers that we're trying to pitch our product to, trying to frustrate our goals all the time. Reality tries to do that. So we have to model a better way within an ecosystem that doesn't really have time or patience for that kind of different way. But we, what else can we do? Like you said, we can't opt out. We'd be leaving the people who could be influenced by it without you know, good quality stuff. We'd be leaving them to the wolves, as it were. And so we have to be there, even if our message at times is you know, uh, unpopular or um, sufficiently nuanced. And of course, we, we don't get things perfectly right, but there's a difference between an outfit that is pandering to the worst impulses of a particular voting block and an outlet that will get things wrong in a way where they strove so hard to not get them wrong and to be fair. And I think there's a lot of value in being that way and in doing that work, even if you're going to get frustrated along the way quite a bit. Do you see a relationship between the existing media and discourse landscape and and the structural incentives that exist within it and so on and populism and kind of the contemporary rise of populist movements? I do. Um, one of the big engines of populism is an uncritical acceptance to what the folk want in a kind of naive sense without trying to um, tame them or corral them or even steer them toward a different way. And that's reflected in the way that partisan news works today, where let's say that I'm, let's just say the blaze, and I have a kind of small impulse in my head to say, ah, let's just tell the truth on this one. You know that you've got five or six other outlets, you know, on your level of scale and uh, that you're competing against, Daily Wire and others, who won't tell the truth on this topic. And you're thinking, the viewers will gravitate toward them if we don't pander in the way that they are doing there. It, it crowds out any inkling of journalistic and objective integrity. So those are the partisan incentives that are there, uh, you know, within the way that, you know, media works today. And populism effectively takes a look at the vast swaths of, you know, the people that you're trying to win over. And it says, let me reflect in my messaging to you, the same values and urgings and promptings that you have in your heart without in any way challenging them to be better or corralling them into a, a, a more humane version of that. It doesn't do any kind of that work. It just tries to reflect and oftentimes in baser forms and you, and, and almost perversely, you degrade people from where they were rather than elevating them or ennobling them at all. So I think it's two sides of the same coin. Absolutely. Yeah, it seems we're stuck in this effectively rage feedback loop where, as you say, it's it's become kind of the role of what used to be the commanding heights of culture and the media and so on. Their role is now just reflecting back the anger, which then exacerbates the anger. You know, we all have the experience of like that 
that relative who becomes a diehard Fox News or Newsmax person and they just seem like the anger keeps seeming to ratchet up because they get angry and then they watch this everything through that lens of more anger and at the same time are being told your anger is justified and here are more things you ought to be angry about and it just it snowballs and this seems to be i mean not just kind of psychologically bad for everyone Right, it's not it's not good for you to live in a constant state of of anger and hatred towards each other, but a real problem for liberalism as well, because we can talk about liberalism as a set of institutions or the rule of law or you know a, a way of living in relationship to each other. But one thing that liberalism is, I think, is you can think of it as like patience and equanimity towards each other, that if we're going to be, if liberalism is diverse people going about their own conceptions of the good life in close proximity to each other and in cooperation with each other, in order for that to work, you can't be just enraged at every difference that you see and every person who's doing something that you wouldn't do. And, and especially if you have people on your television telling you those people are trying to destroy America, they're evil, they're corrupting, they're sapping Western civilization of its precious bodily fluids and so on. We we need this patience and equanimity to simply get along with each other and simply getting along with each other is kind of what liberalism is, but everything is tuned to pushing against that. And, and so now, you know, we both are with the unpopulist, which is critiquing the populist right, but is is doing so as part of a broader defense of, of liberalism. So how do we how do we talk about and defend liberal values in an environment where people are being encouraged to not embody them and also in a lot of cases particularly on the right where these these very liberal virtues of patience toleration equanimity getting along acceptance are portrayed as as weak as as themselves corrupt that what you need is this stridency and anger and strength and toxicity and so on as as like a defense against the effete and civilization sapping and kind of weakness of liberalism. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a tall order. Um, first and foremost, we can produce the kind of work that models a better way. So, as we noted, that work is going to have a kind of ceiling to it, where because we're not out there um, posting in the manner that you know it, you know generates a lot of engagement or um, scores a cheap political point, even though the, the, you know, the, the truth you know, or the facts aren't on our side for, for that particular point. We're not going to be doing that, so our, our way has a natural ceiling to it that we can't overcome. We could just, we're not going to be able to overcome the limitations of this kind of work just won't reach the masses in a way that um, a meme um, just dunking on your opponent will. So, but that, that's still sort of the primary you know, font of our output is the work that we come out with. In addition to that, I think we need to have ongoing discussions about what shape the liberalism that we we expect to be um, resilient in our day and age should look like. Think, 
for example, of um, the discussions we've we've had in the past five years or so about um, Karl Popper's paradox of tolerance, and you know the, the various ways that people sort of landed on that, where if you are fully tolerant of all perspectives, some of those will be intolerant ones, and so it forces you to kind of be intolerant as someone who is advocating for tolerance in order to get rid of the views that would be you know complicating the social project in a way that is perhaps you didn't want to be that aggressive but you kind of have to be because if you don't it could lead to the unraveling of the very framework that you're trying to set up so in the in then the medieval era heading into the modern era you had um various forms of government that were trying to sort of break free from the shackles of religion um and and its dominance on uh you know the social configuration the social arrangement but they saw some people being a little bit too committed to their religious ideals. And then they noted that that could potentially be a challenge when you have two allegiances, one to the social contract and that everything that that requires and one to God and what you perceive God to be telling you to do when push comes to shove, which one are you going to prioritize? So that led to a lot of people who wanted a thriving, vibrant social framework to be in place, looking on at these really committed and devoted religious types and saying, we have to deal with you a little harsher than we would want just simply because your presence within this sphere represents a kind of existential challenge to our increasingly like liberal project. That What does that look like today? We have dominant voices on the extremes, on both sides, but increasingly suffused throughout the entirety of the right that are pushing for straightforwardly illiberal um, forms of, of society and forms of life. Should we move from a kind of classical liberal um, harm principle is our only guideline where you know the negative liberty of if you don't harm someone else, you can you know do whatever you want kind of mild procedural liberalism to a more muscular form of liberalism where you have to take more aggressive steps to counteract the the tide of illiberal sentiment and proposals from people. I, I do think there's a conversation that we should have about that, where our liberalism takes on a kind of more aggressive posture, not because in any way we want to veer into um a kind of authoritarian approach to establishing liberalism, but because the very um, the very possibility of liberalism in this more heightened atmosphere kind of requires it. So what does that look like? Maybe our putting pressure on our social platforms to not be as free speech absolutist, but take a stronger stance toward obvious and flagrant misinformation. So in a in an era where um, the, the challenges to liberalism might not have been so severe, we could take the, the free speech value and say, this is as, pre this is as preeminent as, as any, you know, this is the value to defend. And so let's have zero restrictions. But in a time where all of that stuff is used um, toward the erosion of liberalism so that we could get something completely new and authoritarian and tyrannical, there are steps we can take I think, to counteract that. All of that raises a lot of, I think, really interesting and 
extraordinarily thorny issues, complicated issues. Um, and one of the things that came to mind as you were saying that is, you know, I am just constitutionally in, you know, many senses of that term, very worried about state intervention into well, basically everything. And, and so, but one of the really interesting things that we've seen is, say, for misinformation, the platforms have frequently voluntarily of their own accord without outside regulatory pressure taken steps to limit the spread of misinformation or to community label things that are misinformation as such um, and, and other ways to just kind of slow down its proliferation on their platforms. And they're doing it, I mean, partly because the the leadership are people who don't want to see misinformation and can recognize the harms they can cause. And then partly because it turns out that platforms, customers like places that aren't just filled with conspiracy theories. And, you know, I mean, some customers do like that stuff, but it seems to be a minority. Your platform gets better traction if it's not full of trolls and misinformation. But what's been interesting is how those sorts of voluntary and speech behaviors, like it simply is an exercise of free speech to label a tweet as, you know, this is not true about vaccines or whatever, gets framed often by people not just on the right, but kind of centrist as well as abridgments of speech. So I'm thinking of there's recently something called the West, I think it was the Westminster Declaration that a bunch of people signed about free speech and and the need for free speech. But a lot of it was it is censorship. It's a violation of speech norms for platforms to be labeling, for platforms to be undertaking this kind of stuff. And so there's this pushback, not just on the on the prospects of state intervention, but the prospects of just kind of voluntary calling out, criticizing, and so on. But it does raise these particularly complex issues within liberalism of what counts as the kind of stuff that crosses the line. So if what you're saying is there's a line where a certain set kind of views or a certain quantity of a certain kind of views becomes sufficiently dangerous to liberal foundations that we need to do something about that. We can't just kind of let it go because the risks are too high. We have to decide where to draw the line. And that, in a large sense, that seems to be the crux of a lot of the most vitriolic arguments right now is where are which which views expressions beliefs are so dangerous to our ordered society that we have to we have to crack down on them and you get that on like the right right now is basically thinks that lgbt identities cross that line um, that the the expression of or the promotion of these things, the mention of them in schools, whatever is will destroy our society and so ought to be prohibited. Or critical race theory crosses the line for them, whatever it is they mean by critical race theory, because that's a little ambiguous. On on the left, you get, you know, certain kind of traditional religious beliefs cross that line non-acceptance of gay identities. So not not the like, we need to stamp them out and exclude them from the public sphere, but just like, I don't personally 
like want to be involved with it or I've expressed I don't think it's correct and so on um, or certain views about race or gender or class um, cross that line and and it's not clear how we solve that without in a sense reverting to a liberalism without having you know saying like well okay you Bernie we're just gonna it's it's gonna be what you decide is the you know, you determine where the line is and that's it. But that wouldn't be liberalism as we understand it. Or we put me in charge or we put some small star chamber in charge. And so I feel like that's where the conversation is going forward, is, is figuring that out, is recognizing that liberalism isn't – needs defending – um, and can fall into a liberalism or authoritarianism or fascism. But at the same time, we all kind of pursue motivated reasoning in deciding what are those things that we can no longer tolerate as well. We're not all unbiased, Adam Smithian, you know, outside observers. We're embedded in this discourse and dialogue and political environment and social environment and religious environment and so on ourselves. Is the answer to that just then to kind of go back to like those liberal virtues to say like this is you know we can't get the answer right like we can't we can't have kind of perfect knowledge we're all we all have these incentives and biases but lean into the very kind of intellectual virtues that we were talking about earlier of humility, inquisitiveness, charity and understanding and so on. You know, so I'm a philosophy instructor and um, one of the ways that I teach my students when we're going over logic and critical thinking, one of the ways I teach them about um, informal fallacies is we go over them, their categories, the names, and I give a couple of examples of each. And when we get to equivocation, there's this interesting one that shows the kind of subtlety of how this might work. Um, so it goes like this. It's something like, it's a short argument and see if you can spot the equivocation and let's talk about why it's an equivocation. And the argument is, uh, premise one, everyone has a right to say what they want. And the conclusion, so everything that people say is right. And then I ask them what word is being equivocated over. And of course, they can detect that the word is right. And in the first, you know, in the only premise really of the argument, the word means something like uh, a social allowance to be able to say what you want, the, the ability to say what you want without the state, you know, bearing down on you for saying something wrong, right? Everyone's got a right to say what they want. But then in the conclusion, without announcing itself, the word shifts to a different usage of right. And in that sense, it becomes something like every view is equally plausible, right? So it's, um, so the, when, when the premise goes, everyone's got a right to say what they want. So everything that people say is right, um, sort of to the untrained ear and to the non-critical thinker, you're going to sort of swallow an argument that in the end tells you that every view is, should be, you know, equally acceptable and every, every view is equally plausible when that's just manifestly false. So I think what we need to do as a society and, and just sort of try to craft this norm and hammer it home is that everyone should be able to say what they want, but not everything that they say is equally plausible. Those are two important things to hold in our heads at the same time. So when it comes to free speech, 
let's defend it to the hilt. But when it comes to building our institutions and platforms and wanting those to be a positive force in society, there is nothing wrong with um, the algorithm um, prioritizing views that meet certain criteria, that they're factual, that they have a sensitivity to uh, details and to you know, historical accuracy, um, these kinds of posts. There's nothing censorious about taking a view that, taking a post that has these elements in it and, 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 and then sort of the algorithm pushing that one forward, getting it across more people's eyes and overlooking uh, a different kind of post and not promoting that one algorithmically that instead is just a whole bunch of nonsense. There's nothing censorious about that. If it's announced ahead of time, if it's part of the TOS of a platform. So that's, I think, one way to carry out a more muscular form of liberalism where you're not at all compromising on free speech because you're allowing the bad speech to exist, but neither are you naively promoting it as if it should share a kind of equal hey everyone take a look at this this is really helpful kind of announcement or label to it thank you for listening to zooming in at the unpopulist if you enjoy this show please take a moment to review us in apple podcasts and also check out reimagining liberty our sister podcast the unpopulist where i explore the emancipatory and cosmopolitan case for radical social political and economic freedom Zooming In is a project of The Unpopulist.